0: Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawebible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. This morning's passage is Galatians chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. I'll be reading first in ESV and then from the message. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone, and not his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. And then from the message, live creatively, friends. If anyone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. Stoop down and reach out to those who are oppressed. Share their burdens. And so complete Christ's law. If you think you are too good for that, you are badly deceived. Make a careful exploration of who you are and the work you have been given, and then sink yourself into that. Don't be impressed with yourself. Don't compare yourself with others. Each of you must take responsibility for doing the creative best you can with your own life. Please be seated.
1: As you take your seat, please turn to Galatians 6 if you haven't already. We continue. Every time we approach a text of Scripture, it's like we're going on this through hike through the letter. And it takes us several weeks, and uh, I love it. We just check off different um, checkpoints along the way this point in time we find ourselves at chapter six we'll be working through the first five verses here this morning but i don't know if or how many of you are aware of these ultra races that are done Um, one of them that several of us participate in is called the frozen otter it's a really interesting it's probably one of the most difficult and challenging ultra races in the midwest it boasts itself of only a 20% completion rate every year. Now, that's depending on the weather, of course, but some years are just more intense and more brutal than others. And participants trek a 64-mile, that's a 100K race, and they're, it's done on the Ice Age Trail, which is in the northern Kettle Moraine Forest about, you know, about an hour or so from here. And... You have 24 hours to complete this race. Now, on paper, that looks really good. You can go about two to three miles an hour, just pace yourself, and you can be done within the allotted time frame. Now, the challenge is the terrain. The challenge is the weather. The challenge is your body breaking down and saying, I am not going another step. And so this race is done in the middle of January, and so you can be faced with um, temperatures of negative 20. You can be faced with knee-deep snow. And so we've been participating in this on purpose, and we've done it for the past few years. Now, there's been a handful of us from this fellowship that jump into this, and uh, Pastor Pat and I have been doing this now for a few years, and... We not only participate, but we've been volunteering as well. And so we go and help out this couple that um, you know, sponsors this race and puts it on. And so we help out with the gear check the night before. We help out with getting everything ready for the various checkpoints. And um, it's just a blast for us. We love being part of the race environment. We love being part of the volunteering process. And we also love participating. And I use the word participating intentionally as opposed to competing. Now, there are people who do compete in this. It is a race, but we are not competing. We are participating. We're enjoying each other's company as we hike, as we walk. It's just a blast for us. The only one that we're competing with is ourself. And you're competing with your body, saying, can I go another step? And most of this race is actually done in the dark because it's In January, the race starts at 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday and goes till 10 in the morning on Sunday. And so you know when the sun goes down and when it gets dark and most of the race is done with headlamp in the snow, and it's really challenging, but it's so much fun. I would encourage you to join us next year if you're so inclined, but one of the things that happens is there is a mandatory gear list for uh, if you're going to participate in this, because those who are sponsoring this race, the last thing they want is people dying on their watch. That goes bad for the races in the future. And they all have the waivers that you have to sign, that kind of stuff. But there's a mandatory gear list. And so that's what Pastor Pat and I help out with is we, we go in the night before and we look at people's bags and, and they come in and they unpack their, their mandatory gear list. And there's another list of suggested gear. Now you get to pick and choose from that what you want, what you feel like you need to compete in this race, uh, what you feel like you need for creature comforts along the way, you know what incentives you need at mile you know, 21, just to boost your morale. And so you're carrying the bare minimum plus whatever else you think that you need along the way. And so there was a guy um, this year that, that came in and Pastor Pat and I just, our eyes got so big. And we can tell through experience which means we can tell by doing it wrong for a few years, right? So we can tell by experience who the novice is and who the veteran is by what pack they come in with and how full that thing is. And so we had one guy come in this year, and our eyes just got really big as he rips open his bag, and there's just a buffet of snacks. It's just loaded with all this different food, and we're like, man, we've got to hike with this guy along the trail. Let's make friends with him because he might need some help lightening his load along the way. So anyway, as we go through, it, it's just impressive. Year after year, we realize how minimalistic we can actually be. And so I've gotten to the place where my pack is this. It's reduced to the bare minimum inside this pack, all the the mandatory Gear that you actually need can be found in this Ziploc bag, and so instead of this um, Camelback holds a, a two-liter water bladder, which I could fill up, but I've and I used to do that. But you're carrying needless weight, and so I just carry just a 20-ounce bottle of water, and we pack from checkpoint to checkpoint. And so really, apart from just a few other articles of backup clothing and or a few bars, that kind of stuff, this is all I'm carrying. Just this minimalistic pack as opposed to this giant pack that that other people are, are coming in and it's just, it's loaded with anything and everything that you can possibly think of. One guy actually tries to keep a pizza as warm as possible on the trail for as long as possible. It's really interesting. Surprisingly, he's never finished the race. With that said, I've never... Finished it either, but uh, it's uh, for us comp- not competing. Participating in it is is like a win to us anyway. But this morning, we're going to look at this idea. In the ultra race, the participants weigh down their pack as heavy or as light as they want it, and it's on them what they're going to what they're going to carry. They're going to bear their own load. And in the text this morning, we are going to look at what it's like for us to journey through life together as a family and be mindful of the weight that we're carrying in our packs. So as we look at this text and as Jim has just read for us, let's look at verse 1. The emphasis of this passage is bearing one another's burden as a loving expression of our gospel freedom. What does that look like? What does it mean? And we're going to start out and see that we are to be caring for those who are captured by any transgressions. Look at verse 1. We're only going to read the first part of it. It should read, brothers and sisters. I don't know what your translation says. A lot of them just say brothers, but it should read, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. This text has both a general and a specific application to the church, but I've only ever heard this taught and preached in the general sense and never In consideration of its context. So, while the principles we'll see this morning have far reaching implications for life on the horizontal and can be applied generally or generically, there's a more direct and a more specific meaning and application that we will consider this morning. And as we've just read the first part of verse 1, some natural questions start popping out to us that we need to answer. Who might be caught in transgression? What transgression? How? Who should respond to this situation? How should they be responding to this situation? What's the goal of our response? So let's answer some of these questions that the text just naturally causes us to ask and do so in understanding the nature of being caught in transgression. What is this transgression? Who might be caught in transgression? Well, the text tells us that anyone within this fellowship, no one is exempt from being caught, whether pastor or parishioner or even apostle. I think that is what has been taking place within the scope of this letter. We saw back in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, that this is actually what happened to Peter. This is what happened when he was caught in transgression, and it influenced the church, even Barnabas. What transgression? What's this text talking about? We've often heard it where it's taught just, you know, any transgression and where do we go naturally? The evident works of the flesh that Paul points back to in verses 19 through 21. Remember, he just gave a nod to those. And that wasn't even the focal point of that text. Now, it can apply there. But in the context of this letter to these churches, there's a more specific application. Now, transgression does mean sin. It means um, a false step. It means any failure. That's the definition, explanation of transgression. So it can include, and we highlighted this last week, it can include the evident works of the flesh. Listed there in verses 19 through 21, remember, they're only representative. It's not exhaustive. That list can go on and on. But this transgression or false step can also be the not-so-evident leveraging of the law to accomplish righteousness. And that's what these churches were struggling with. They weren't struggling with this gross immorality. They were struggling with trying to do the right thing based on law obedience. Going back to what they were rescued from to either secure or maintain their righteousness. And Paul says, knock it off. You see, we generally apply this to the obvious works of the flesh, but the more specific and contextual meaning and application actually focuses on the not-so-evident abuse of the law to live righteous. That can be and is, I would argue, our natural human default. We want to bring something to the equation. We want to bring something to the table. We want to live out this law perfectly. And the law came in and says you can't. We've emphasized this in the past few weeks as we've worked through the letter of Galatians. Paul is rallying believers to live in their freedom by the Spirit rather than in slavery to the law. So how does one get caught in transgression? If we ignore the context, we can easily make this a witch hunt. And we can start looking for anybody who has carefully concealed sin of any kind and sort. And this text is sadly used for that often. However, being caught in transgression is not someone blatantly nurturing the evident works of the flesh. It's not someone trying to conceal some hidden dark sin from being exposed. That's not what this text is highlighting or focusing on. In its context, this caught in transgression is something that happens more subtly. It happens a lot more slowly and progressively over time. It's something that is so discreet that it takes the person by surprise. That's this word caught. It's like, I can't believe I found myself here. This is crazy. It blindsides them. Being caught in transgression here happens to well-intentioned people who love Christ and his church. And I think the example I've just mentioned previously is what we see taking place with Peter being caught in transgression in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. So flip over to chapter 2. We'll look at these verses real quickly. I think this, this transpired in Peter's life over time. It happened slowly. It took him and others by surprise. Choosing to resort to law-based righteousness was to distort the gospel. Paul says in this passage, it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And it caused division within the churches. This hypocrisy wasn't blatant. It didn't look like, from the outside, it didn't look like this grotesque error or these evident works of the flesh. And yet Paul's calling out Peter here for distorting the gospel, for deserting the gospel, for being caught in transgression. And actually this looked like, by all appearances from a Jewish perspective, it looked like the right move, it looked like the right play. Like, yeah, maybe we should be pulling back from these Gentile believers. This isn't in accordance with what we have known to be true. There's this tension taking place. The gospel has broken down all walls, all barriers. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about Jew or Gentile. It's not about gender. It's not about all these different lists and jockeying for position. It's not about any of this stuff. It's about Jesus. And he makes one people. And this has been the plan all along. He told Abraham, "...in you all nations will be blessed." And we're seeing this come to fruition, but it doesn't happen without controversy, and it doesn't happen without tension. That's what's taking place in these early churches. As soon as they're planted, Pastor Pat looked at the historical context from Acts thirteen through fifteen. As soon as Paul planted a church in one city, the Jews pushed back against that. And they said, No, 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 no. And they, they persecuted Paul and he moved to another city, and so they followed him. And he planted a church. And they persecuted him and he left. And he planted another another church. Listen to verses 11 through 14. You can follow along in your Bibles. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct, their orthopraxy was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter was caught in transgression. That's what Paul's talking about in chapter 6. It affected his actions, and it impacted others. But he tells us how to respond. How do we respond to people like Peter in this context, who got caught up in this transgression of going back to law and distorting the gospel? It's easy for us to succumb to the temptation, to succumb to the pull to live under law and to try to do in order to earn Well, he tells us. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. This is a relational term. It means restoring or mending. This happens in the context of relationships. It's on the horizontal with one another. None of this happens in the abstract it happens in community there's faces and names attached to these people there's relationships taking place it's real people like you and me can you imagine at a potluck we start separating from from people we used to eat with because of some list that we feel more comfortable with we start comparing one another and judging one another and that's really in one sense was taking place, but on a more intense scale. So unselfishly caring for those living under the weight of transgression, it looks and feels a certain way. How do we do that? How do we unselfishly care for one another who are caught? Who's the person in this text that needs to be restored? Who are the people who are the ones that are doing the restoring, who's part of the restoration process? Well, those caught in transgression in this context are those living in bondage to the law. Paul's been addressing this all along. It's those who are looking to the law to do what the law was never intended to do. The law could only legislate. It could not empower It could never give life. It could never make righteous those who were looking to it. That wasn't the purpose and the intent of the law. The law came in, and it exposed our transgressions, and it increased it. And now sin takes advantage of the law and leverages the law against us, where all it could do is remind us that we can't. We can never measure up to God's standard. Law was never intended to accomplish that for us. It could never produce righteousness. If we're looking to law to give us life, we're done. Only one can give us life, and his name's Jesus. And so to go back to law to try to secure for us or maintain for us what the law could never do, Paul says it's foolish. He says it's bondage. And so how do we restore those? Just listen to chapter 5 alone in Galatians, what this restoration process looks like. Chapter 5, verse 1, restore those who've succumbed to living under the weight of the yoke of slavery. Restore them. Restore those who attempt to live righteous by keeping law. That's verses 2 and 3. If they're looking to law, they've got to keep the whole law. They can't just pick and choose what laws are convenient and not. Restore those who've fallen from the path of grace, chapter 5, verse 4. Restore those who've abused their freedom by indulging their natural human appetites or desires of the flesh, 513. Restore those whose practice is not in step with the truth of the gospel, verses 16 through 26. And who's to be doing the restoring? In the text, it says those who are spiritual. Who's that? We'd all put ourselves, you know, if we're trying to micromanage someone else's life, we're never going to see ourselves as the one who needs help, who needs someone speaking into. We're all going to feel like, well, of course we're the spiritual ones. My gift is a gift of discernment. And I discern that you have some hidden sin in your life. This is not that text. Those who are spiritual is anyone that has the Spirit of God indwelling them. But in this context, he's pointing to those who are not looking to law, those who are actually living in the freedom of the gospel, who are living in grace, who understand that it's not by the works of the law that we're sanctified. And Paul's telling them this is the context of a believing community. And so there's groups of people who are caught up in this, and there's groups of people who need to speak into this. It's not done in isolation. So those who are living in freedom of the gospel by faith, dependent on the Spirit, need to come alongside those who are trying to leverage law to do. Those who are trying to tick the box. And how do we know who those are? Well, in the context... Those who are leveraging law are the ones that are causing divisions and saying, you've got to live like this. If you're going to be right with God, then you've got to do this, 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 and this. It's Jesus plus. And it looks really good on paper. And we need to come alongside those, just what Paul did. What Peter's actions were doing wasn't private. It was public. And Peter deals with this publicly and he, he addresses it graciously. And he addresses it corporately. And he comes alongside and restores Peter in the presence of all. What was the corrective? Peter needed to come back to the gospel and believe the right things again so that his practice would line up with what he really believed to be true. So how should we be approaching this restoration process. Remember, this is done in community. It's done amongst relationships. How should we be approaching one another? Well, the text says that we should be doing so in a spirit of gentleness. Have you ever been so right that you're actually wrong? Every married man knows this all too well. It's not just what you know, and it's not just being right, but it's how you communicate this thing in the process. I've been less than gracious in my rightness more than once. But how we handle serious matters and how we interact with one another in this restoration process matters. How we care for one another matters. Remember, this is done in community, amongst family. This is brothers and sisters we're dealing with. And that's just for starters. Secondly, we also need to handle this very graciously because in all honesty, in all transparency, mask comes off, this can be me. I'm not exempt from this. I can handle this text and deliver it to this congregation, step down from this platform, and start engaging in the very thing that I'm preaching against. I can be drawn into trying to leverage law to either secure or maintain righteousness and need the believing community to speak into my life. And so we, we approach these things cautiously, we approach them graciously, we approach them lovingly, we approach them in humility. We don't want to be harsh or arrogant in this. And so, in the remainder of this text, Paul is telling us how we cautiously care for one another, how we lovingly come alongside in community and exercise caution as we deal with these challenging contexts. Those leveraging law to control others were causing division, we're destroying one another and distorting the gospel. Remember that the goal in all of this is restoration to unity around the gospel. Who's sufficient for these things? Only the Holy Spirit can accomplish this. This is a work of the Spirit on display in the church. Because left to ourselves, we're going to bite and devour one another. And that's what verses 15 and 26 say in chapter 5. And if we're leveraging law to accomplish this and put people in these categories... We're going to destroy one another. This is a mess on the horizontal, and the Spirit is sufficient for these things. But we're cautioned in here to be aware rather than being arrogant. Look at the back half of verse 1 and look at verse 3. It says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In verse 3 it says, For if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. It's really easy for us to start thinking that we're the functional Savior in someone else's life. Especially when we look at our own life and we compare ourselves to others and we feel like we've got our act together. Or we can erroneously think that we're untouchable in some way to this pull to live under law. I understand grace. I get the freedom. There's no way that I could succumb to this again and live under law. And Paul encourages us to be very careful as we care for one another. He warns us from being deceived by our own arrogance. It's really easy for us, and I'll speak of myself, it's really easy for me to be narcissistic. And given the position and role that I am, It's really easy for me to be drawn to this, to succumb to it. And that's why we surround ourselves with people that we love, people that we trust, people that are going to speak truth into us, people that are going to come alongside us. We don't do this in isolation. It's really easy for us to get sucked back in to the pull of the flesh, to get caught It's so easy then for us, if you understand grace and you get the freedom that Paul's talking about, why in the world would we ever go back to the bondage of the law? It's really easy for us to be annoyed or frustrated with those who don't understand, who don't get it, who may be living under this heavy load of doing and trying harder to earn God's favor, to maintain God's favor those who are living in freedom, it could be really easy to be less than gracious. Well, that's a paradox. That doesn't make sense, but it can happen. It'd be so easy for us who understand freedom to be arrogant or deal harshly or sharply rather than demonstrating love. And throughout Galatians, Paul points to those who are living under law. He's targeting their manipulation. He's targeting their deception. He's targeting their hypocrisy. The fact that they're persecuting those who are living under grace and living in freedom. He targets those because they're infiltrating and permeating the church. They're devouring. They're arrogant. They're envying one another. And I can put chapter and verse on all of these throughout Galatians. You can pinpoint all of these things that I just said. And Paul is zooming in on these individuals and saying, stop distorting the gospel. Stop turning people away from the gospel. Stop living in this bondage. These are the people who are, get caught up in this transgression. Therefore, as we endeavor to restore them to right living, we, we, our goal is to restore them to live in the freedom of the gospel to not go back to the yoke of slavery. We want them to stop living in error and start enjoying the freedom that is theirs in Christ. And we have to be careful not to be arrogant or conceited because we understand grace. We understand what it means to live life in the Spirit. In short, we can be less than gracious to those who don't understand grace. And we can treat those living in bondage in the same manner in which they treat us. Because that's really what's taking place here. If you go back up into chapter 4, Paul's giving the illustration and he's comparing Hagar and Sarah, slave free woman. Who's the offspring? Ishmael, Isaac. And what did he say in chapter 4? He said, this has always been the case where the child of the slave woman, Ishmael, persecuted the child of the, of the free woman, Isaac. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. That's taking place still today. And he says, if you look at the verse, it's in verse 29 of chapter 4, but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. The pushback we get living under grace, living in freedom, living by faith in the Spirit, the pushback we get, for the most part, is within the fellowship. The pushback you get is friendly fire. The persecution exists today. It always has. It has since day one. The church is being planted. It continues today. Those who want to go back and live under bondage are always going to be persecuting those who are living in freedom because their life should look like this. And we want to pull them back into their life looking like this list. We want to put this weight on them. And everyone's list is a little bit different. But here's what we're called to. We're called to bearing one another's burdens in love, and that's what verse 2 tells us. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bearing one another's burdens in love is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an outworking of the Spirit in us and through us to one another. This is not something that I manufacture. I can't conjure up enough love. What a paradox then on display in the churches of Galatia. Those adamant about the law were the ones actually causing divisions within the body. They were distorting the gospel and they were causing others to desert the gospel. They were manipulative, chapter 4, verse 17. They were devouring one another, chapter 5, verse 15. And in 526, they were arrogant, they were provoking one another, they were the ones that were endeav- um, envying one another. They were demanding law and destroying the body. What a paradox. And so how are we called to deal with that? On the flip side, Paul says, restore them. Restoring our brothers and sisters by reminding them to live from their position, not for it. This is fulfilling the law of Christ because this is the loving thing to do. In John's gospel, Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, this is going to be the mark of you, that they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. This goes contrary to what comes naturally from us. If someone persecutes you, what's the natural response? Revenge. Payback, in kind, eye for an eye. Paul deals with the same stuff throughout all of his letters. Flip real quickly to Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, in verses 3 through 8, he's talking about the body living like the body and the gifts that we've been given by the Spirit to care for one another. And throughout these chapters, he talks about the upbuilding of the body. And then you get down to verse 9. And he says, "Let love be genuine. Abhor or hate, detest what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Seek to show hospitality." Verse 14, interestingly enough, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And then he continues. Into chapter 13, verse 8, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And you could keep going in chapter 14 and 15, and Paul keeps unpacking this idea of love being the fulfillment of the law. And this love is a fruit of in evidence, a mark of the Spirit at work in us. This is what it looks like tangibly. Back in Galatians, in our context, in chapter 6, verse 4, how does testing our own work, we'll read the verse in a second, but how does testing our own work and boasting in ourselves fit in any way, shape, or form with what Paul is saying throughout Galatians, or in any of his other writings. At first read, this seems to cause our gears to lock, because it doesn't seem to make sense. But verse 4 says, But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. What's going on here? you got to remember, those who are living under law are comparing themselves to others, and they're boasting in people who they get to follow their list. Specifically, he's identifying circumcision. This idea of testing your own work means to examine the genuineness of it. What's the authenticity of your own work? And so if we're examining and looking at our own life and not trying to compare ourselves to others, but if we're we're narrowing the focus in and we zoom in on our own life. We really can only come to co- two conclusions. One, we can live self righteously under law and tick all the boxes and look at our work and see what we've done and not done. What have we observed? What have we obeyed? What have we avoided? We don't necessarily go to all the things that Paul lists in these different passages, all the things that the Jews do, but we have our own list. We don't always look to observance of days and feasts and all these different things, but we have our own list. Or we can look at the fruit of the Spirit on display in us and through us to others. The Spirit producing love and joy and peace and patience and faithfulness. This is what the Spirit does in us. And so, if we are honestly assessing and honestly looking at our own lives, and if our assessment reveals we're in category number one, and we're boasting in our ability to achieve, to do, and to accomplish, what is that saying? We're saying that we're the ones who are caught in transgression, and we need others to come alongside of us and remind us to live in freedom. So where's our boast? What if our assessment reveals that our work is the consequence of the Spirit's work in us and through us? Then where's our boast? Is it really in us? If we continue reading the context, jump down in this chapter to verse 12. Paul lays out this tension in greater detail as he's summarizing and concluding his letter. He says, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised. Why? That they may boast in your flesh. So the boast is in others. What's Paul's boast? Verse 14, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says it's all about the gospel. So, as we examine our own lives in one sense and test the genuineness of what's taking place, is this the Spirit at work and the fruit that He's producing, or is it us trying to leverage law and compare ourselves with others? Where's the boast? The boast is either in the gospel or it's in ourself. It's in the spirit or it's in ourself, our works, our effort. We could take the time to go through all the literary context, but here's just the highlight reel. Paul says those who are deserting the gospel or distorting the gospel, they're resorting to the works of the law to boast. Here's what they boast in. They boast in chapter 1, verse 10. They're boasting in man's approval, pleasing to men. They're boasting in their ability to control or influence others. That's chapter 2, 5, verses 12 and 13. It's again in chapter 6. They're relying on their ability to keep the law, which in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, say that's actually a curse. It's not a blessing. And they've got to bear the full weight of the law. In chapter 4, they're boasting in following the elementary principles of the world. In chapter 4, verses 16 through 20, they're boasting in their ability to manipulate in the false praise of others. And ultimately, in chapter 6, they're conforming others to their standards, their rules, their list of what they think looks like righteousness. Ultimately, it's a confidence in the works of the law that they're boasting in, and it's empty pursuit to gain control to gain power, to gain influence. And it appears spiritual on the outside. And Paul says it's empty, and it's destroying unity, and it's turning people away from the gospel. Verse 5 is an interesting verse where he says, he's got done telling us, bear one another's burdens in love, and by doing so we're fulfilling the law of Christ. We're coming alongside and we're helping those who are caught in any transgression. The transgression to live under the weight of law. We're coming alongside them in humility and gentleness and we're helping them see the freedom of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. And he says, ultimately, each one will have to bear his own load. This load is the idea of carrying something. It could be translated as, a ship's cargo, or us collecting or picking up this bundle of sticks and laying it on our back, or you're picking up and carrying these rocks. I think practically as I look at this this text, and I think through what the Judaizers were doing, it's like they were picking up this pack, and they're choosing to put the commandments in the pack. And not just any command, not just the 10. I'm picturing the 10 on the tablets of stone. Throw that in the pack and live under the weight of trying to accomplish those, trying to do, but not just those. We're going to add 613 more stones into the pack and see what that feels like because that, that looks really good and it's going to help us safeguard and protect against violating the other 10 and walking around with this heavy burden. And what did Christ do? He came in, and he fulfilled the law in our place. We could never do. We could never accomplish. And he came in and says, it's finished. He lived the sinless life we could never live. And he says, now go live free. Don't pick up the pack and put in all the stones. It'd be like us going on the frozen otter And, you know, some some years there's actually no snow, shockingly. And you would think the trail would be easier. And in some ways it is. But now, instead of walking on the snow, your feet are hitting every rock and root. But what if we went and said, hey, that's a really cool rock. Let's pick it up and carry it. And we put it in our pack. And we're doing this of different weights and sizes. And we're adding it to the pack and we're carrying this needless weight Or I could say to Pastor Pat, hey, that's a really cool rock. You should carry it. That would go great on your shelf in the office. That's what's taking place in this text. Remember what Peter said in Acts 15? He says, Why in the world are we putting a weight on these Gentiles that neither we nor our fathers could bear? We couldn't fulfill the law, we couldn't carry this weight. Now Christ has come in and he's fulfilled it for us. That doesn't make us lawless. I mean, that's the charge. As you hear me speak, the charge is antinomian. The charge is no law. The charge is you hate the the Old Testament and you don't live under, it's like, I don't live under the weight of that because Christ has fulfilled it. I'm not looking to my performance. I'm looking to his performance. And anything that I'm doing that Looks like this is because the Spirit's at work in me producing these things. It's not that we're lawless, it's that we're looking to someone else rather than our ability to accomplish these things. We're not doing to try to earn. We're confident that because Christ is in us and His Spirit is at work, the works will follow. It's not something I have to manufacture, it's not something I have to maintain, it's not something I have to merit. He's doing it in and through me, and I'm confident in that. And so this is in direct contrast because Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, this is a yoke of slavery. He says, you are free to go live in freedom, not to pick up this yoke, this weight of bondage again. And in the same language, what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30? He says, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So as we wrap up this, this morning, bearing one another's burdens is a loving expression of the gospel. Bearing one another's burdens is a loving expression of the gospel produced by the Spirit. Bearing one another's burdens is a loving expression of the gospel produced by the Spirit for the restoration and building up of the body of Christ. So the the choice that we do have is what load are we going to carry? What was the weight? What was the load? What was the pack that those living under the law are carrying? What is it like to yoke up with the law and live under slavery? What load is being carried by those who are yoked up with Jesus? What load are we choosing to live under? Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is a, a sobering thing for us to come to a text like this to think that you've rescued us, you've freed us to enjoy this freedom, enjoy this relationship with you, and yet we resort to trying to earn your favor, earn your merit. We pigeonhole one another, and we try to get others to conform to whatever list we think looks like holiness and righteousness. And this isn't a new thing. Paul's been telling the churches of Galatia since the beginning of the early church, stop it live in freedom, walk by faith, enjoy this relationship, depend on the Spirit. We need the same message today. Strengthen us by your Spirit to do the loving thing and bear one another's burdens, being gracious with one another, caring for one another along this journey, calling one another back from our tendency to live under law, calling us back to the gospel, to the freedom that is ours in Christ. Refresh us with your spirit. Refresh us by the text of Scripture. In Christ's name, amen.